so good to be in here. Uh, if you are new here this morning, my name is Tony. I'm pastor here at LAFC, and it is awesome to be in the Father's house uh, today worshiping. And, uh, you know, the great thing is, as we've taught from the text over the uh, last couple weeks, is that, quite frankly, no longer is the presence of God relegated to a single temple in Jerusalem and a single room within that temple called the Holy of Holies, but rather the presence of God indwells mankind. We become walking temples when by faith we receive the grace given us in the work of Jesus Christ. And having said that, we are now going to go into the word which God has given us so that we would know how to live and apply uh, that which he desires upon our life. And so his word, we will be in 1 Peter today and be on page 1139 in the Bibles that are about to be handed out. And so if you need a Bible, just put your hand up and our ushers would be glad to provide you one. So Peter, again, is, has been writing uh, this epistle to a church that is suffering and has gone through a lot of difficult things. And as a result, he is preparing them for how to survive and do well. And quite frankly, thrive in the midst of the persecution they receive. And so at this time, he's talked through the truths that, that, and statements about the fact that we have a hope that is beyond the present. We can look eternally upon that which God has provided for us and is preparing for us even now. And then we looked at how the salvation that comes in Jesus Christ, the suffering Messiah, that provides the coverage of sin so that we can be reconciled back to the Father, that that salvation provides us a glory that is not only to come, but is now. I mean, they were writing, the prophets were writing about glories that would come after the suffering Messiah comes back to life. And part of that strange glory is that the presence of God is in mankind now. It's not relegated to a single room on the face of the earth. But those same prophets looked at things that were going to be beyond that, that they could not fully understand. And then last week we looked at that in light of those truths, we are called to a life where we are prepared for action, alert, looking forward to that which God might have for us today, and always being prepared that Jesus will come back for his church, and that could be today. So we live lives of expectancy, and then ultimately, we're called to align our lives to the Father himself, and the Father is holy. And so he calls us to be holy just as he is holy. And that's what brings us up through verse 16. And now into verse 17, we will continue today. So will you join me in looking at this? Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. So a little over a third of the message today comes out of this single verse. So let me read it again. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Since you call on a father. You see, that's really the storyline, is it not? That when we pray, we cry out to a father. It's a relationship. It's not this 
you know, foreign God or this still God that, that has an image that is made of gold that doesn't respond. No, it's calling out and, and uh, believing that there is a, a reciprocation, a receiving of that which we're calling out on. And so this relationship has begun with this God who is referred to as Father. It was Jesus himself who regularly modeled for us what it means to approach the Heavenly Father. He would steal away and pray, and he would begin by saying, Father, I love you. These are my sheep that you have given me. Help me as I lead them and care for them. And then you see that when he was asked, how should we pray? Jesus began with, will you pray by me saying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. He was referred to, yes, as Father, but always as a responding deity, not as one who does not care, one who is too busy to listen, but as one like a father that is listening to a child speak. And then it says in this text that he not only is one that he wants to be called upon as father, but he is one that judges each person's work impartially. So he's like that father that is the impartial dad. Now this past weekend, uh, literally yesterday was the ending of it, was the marriage retreat. And part of that marriage retreat, uh, Matt Sawada led us in an activity where we kept adding things up or taking away and multiplying based on questions such as, how many years have you been married? How many children do you have? How many uh, houses have you lived in in the last five years? How many jobs have you had in the last 10 years? And so after each thing, you'd say, now take that number and divide it from the other or multiply it from the other or just simply take away from the other. But when they did a multiplier using the number of children, there were certain people in the room that we knew, oh my goodness, this is going to go big. The Zook family, I know that when we go through the church directory, they literally fill the entire frame of the picture. I don't know how many children they have, but when this game was going on yesterday, I knew they were going to be the winners of the highest number. And so what I want to do now is just get a sense for the size of families we have in this room. If you are a parent, how many of you would say, I have at least two children? Put your hands up and keep them up and put them down if, you, if I go beyond the number you have. So three. Four, five, six, seven, eight. All right. Do we have any more than that? Wait, wait. Up there. How many do we have? <laughs> I see eight fingers, correct? Eight is enough. And the ones laughing are older than me because they know there was a TV show called Eight is Enough, right? So their first service had the winning group as being eight children. Now, knowing the people, that, you know, and I, I know the ones that were raising their hands now, we, we know that they're good parents. And, uh, and I'm sure that while they 
have certain children that they can say, yeah, they're a little more challenging than another. They're impartial in the way they love and discipline. Good parents do that. It doesn't matter if they're the firstborn or the youngest. Good parents impartially give love and offer discipline. If they do not, and let's say that one does not receive discipline as the others receive. What you do is you create chaos in the Sunday school rooms at our church. <laughs> and you create chaos for teachers in the schools. You cannot withhold discipline from a child because Scripture says clear, you'll ruin them and their character. You see, in this text it says, we call out to a father who judges impartially. In other words, he will look critically upon all his children with joy and laughter and delight and concern and that's that very like precise eyeball, hairy eyeball as they say, looking in and saying, you need to get a grip right now. There are times when we need to see that disciplining look upon our parents' faces. But we don't doubt that there is love. A good parent, again, will both lavish love on all children that they have and discipline them with equal discipline. As one commentarian said, our Father, our Heavenly Father, is that loving disciplinarian who cannot permit his children to enjoy sin. So in regards to our Heavenly Father, He does not enjoy when His children are enjoying that which is an assault and affront to Him. It grieves His heart because He's paid a great price to make you His child. He is desiring to make sure that you, once you become His child, that the price He paid will serve well for your life going forward. So he wants to make sure that you are experiencing the full privileges of the payment he's made for you. And so as father, he will then discipline you impartially. So we call out on him. It's a relationship like a father to child. And he is that impartial dad that regardless of whatever birth number you are, he loves you. And he disciplines you all the same. But it says in this text, again in verse 17, that we call on a father who judges impartially, and then we're to live out then our time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Yes, we're called to live out a reverent fear between us and the father. Now, this isn't necessarily speaking of being terrified of him or being afraid of him but it is about fear that causes us to align to him just to give a little bit of an example I love my father very much we've always had a very special relationship you can put the picture up on the screen this is my father. Now, many of you have gotten to know him over the last couple of years uh, as they're in semi-retirement stage, and, and for the first time, we go to the same church. 
It's a little weird that I'm his pastor. Um, and, and so for years of confidant, you know, now we don't talk as much about the things that happen in church because he now knows everybody. And so therefore, I keep it careful. I know a lot of people have come up and said, we really love your dad. The rest of you haven't come up to me is because maybe you don't care for him a whole lot. That's okay. I love him, and so do many of you, and that's great. But I need to tell you that while in this picture everything's great because I probably haven't displayed the full measure of my sin quite yet at this stage at age like 18 months right there. But at this stage, the next picture, this is rocking 1989. <laughs> baby the pink sweater the rolled up cuffs on my jeans the acid wash color to my jeans and what you can't see because the winds blowing it off to the side I am rocking a flowing mullet in this picture <laughs> and just like last week we I asked for a picture to go off the screen because I couldn't stand the haircut of the guy that was in the picture I like this one I am rocking the hair right there and but you're going to see there's my sister and then there's my parents and and this is my senior year of high school and i can tell you that while all the years of growing up to this point i loved my dad and we were really tight but i will tell you i was also afraid of him more than anybody else on the face of the earth hands down nobody put fear in me like my dad he was that guy that when you were growing up, that if mom said, wait till your dad gets home, there was fear that came in. Now, I understand in today's age, there's a lot of different opinions about discipline. But the scripture says that if you spare the rod, you... I was not spoiled. Okay? I was not spoiled. My parents... We're not afraid to use the rod. Primarily, my father was not afraid to discipline me. And as a result, if I crossed the line at home and my dad was not there, I knew that a reckoning was coming. I also knew that if my dad said the warning signs like, if you go here, you will regret it, I knew he was right. There was fear in that. And that is a good thing a lot of parents fail to put fear into their children they will try to be friend over father or mother and as a result they spoil the child because there's no fear that there's any kind of retribution for poor behavior and in my case there were different moments that were life-altering at the hands of discipline but one in particular stands out to me that happened around this time when around 1989 and this was when my father was traveling quite a bit my senior year doing ministry from basically Kansas City to the West Coast and during that season of time it was left up to my mom to manage the home but I was at that stage of life where receiving instruction from my parents was not desirable I thought I knew better and so I would take their thing, their statements as, I'll take it under advice. And so you can imagine the attitude issues and the conflict that would come. But my mom had to bear the brunt of my pride. 
And there was a point where I had really blown it by my attitude. When I realized that my mom was crying because of what I had done. My dad came home from a trip. And I knew that when I came in the house and he gave me that look, I knew that my mom had already talked to him. And he says, you and I need to talk. And what he said next, he had never said to me before or after. But it got my attention. He said, I choose your mom. And I will reject you if you continue to wreak havoc in our house. Imagine your father, who you love deeply, has just laid down the law and saying, I choose your mother. But you, if you continue in this pattern, I will reject. Not because he stops loving me, but because for the sake of our household, he needed to put it down and say, it cannot continue as is. The strange thing about that season of time was that it was also the pinnacle of time where God was doing a deep work in my life. I can tell you my junior and senior years were the years that, that God was doing a correction of my life. He was speaking into me. He was giving me a vision for the future. But at the same time, there were some big strongholds that needed to be taken down. And the, and the, the truth of the matter is, I did not fear my mother. For if I had feared her, I would have treated her differently. And that was on me. My love was lacking. My respect was lacking. But this was a moment where the man that I had esteemed was saying he would reject me if I would continue to harm his wife. That was a deal breaker. A watershed moment. And that of reverent fear to my father... I changed in my behavior towards my mom. But it took time for the deep work in my soul. So when you see in this text that since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, in other words, there's not favorites with God, then you better believe that his love will show discipline. And as a result... We should live with reverent fear. One commentarian said this, Reverent fear is evidenced by a tender conscience, a watchfulness against temptation, and avoids things that displeases God. Let that sink in for a moment. Reverent fear is evidenced in a person's life by a tender conscience a watchfulness against that which might tempt you and avoids things that would displease your father. So we call out on this Abba Father, Dad, and we say, 
I love you, but I also revere you. I respect you. I fear you. And as a result, I will live that out daily, what it means to pursue holiness. But in this text, he says something here that I also want to highlight in verse 17, is the word foreigner. It says we're to live out as foreigners with reverent fear. Why does he say that? It's because as a foreigner, when you have a relationship with a father God that is holy, and you are aligning your life to this holy father, and he's saying, become like me, be holy like me, then you're going to become more and more strange to the world. So we live out with fear and we live out for a father who loves us. So let me go back to the love part of it. We love the father not because we initiated that. No, we love the father. First John's very clear about this. We love him and others because he went first. He loved first. John 3:16 then expands that story. When it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in that son will not perish but have eternal life with the Father. And then Paul says in Romans, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were still cruddy sinners, he died for us. He died for us. So this love is on display and, and of course when you realize that in spite of who we are and the sins we've committed, he loved us and he paid a great price for us, then of course we would want to love the one who's paid so much for us. But when you begin to align yourself to that, that one you fear and the one you love, that heavenly father, you will become strange. If you love God more than you love yourself, you're already strange to the rest of the world. Why would you love something you cannot see? Why would you give yourself to somebody you can't audibly hear? You've just set yourself as strange to many people. Loving God is countercultural. You see, the main thing that we keep hearing from people is, it's about being happy and seizing the moment. But that's often in the light of a self-indulgent attitude. But when you choose to love, but love something that is beyond culture, that is counter-cultural, in other words, loving at the cost of your own will, at the cost of your own self, loving God and loving people, you will become extremely strange. There's probably no greater compliment that could be given to somebody who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ and a lover of the Father than to be told, you're different. You're strange. You're odd. Now, most of the time when we hear those things, it doesn't conjure up a smile. But it should if it's in regards to your character and that which is the object of your faith and your love. 
We should become foreigners. That people begin to notice, you're not from around here. Your accent is different. The way you dress is different. The, your behavior is different. You're clearly, clearly a foreigner. We should become strange to those around us because we're living different. And therefore, it catches your attention. And you begin to lean in. You're different. You're a foreigner, but yet you sound like you're from around here. You dress like you're from around here, but your behavior says you're different. We're going to look at later in Peter that it says that people should recognize the difference. And as a result, be ready to respond to their questions as to why you're different. But let's continue on in the text. So we're to live out as foreigners in reverent fear of a father that we have a relationship with. In verse 18, he says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. He redeemed you. He redeemed you. comes from a Greek word called latrao, which means to pay a ransom. Now, we don't use the term redeemed today. We rarely would say that. But in the culture of the time this is being written, regularly it was used to basically pay a ransom for a relative who may have become deeply in debt to someone and therefore sold themselves to become a slave to a slave owner, the person that they were indebted to. A family member then could redeem them, paying the debt, and therefore releasing them from their captivity. So when it says that God redeemed you, he made you his child by redeeming you, he paid a ransom because you were captive before that. And in this case, captive to death and ultimate judgment because of the sin that's in your and my life. That's an affront to a holy God. So he redeems you. He pays the ransom, paying the price for your captivity so that you can be set free. Now the price that he paid was not through silver or gold, something that has a limit to its value, but rather he paid by a perfect lamb without blemish, whose blood is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And Jesus' blood is ultimately and infinitely capable of covering all sin. So therefore, the price paid by God for your ransom was a price that cannot be matched by any other value. How are you feeling about our Father now? That he loved you so much that he paid a price of ransom for you that was taking his very own son and telling that son to die on a cross so that his blood can be spilt to cover over the multitude of sins for those who have defied God. It's not even dying for people that are nice to God. 
dying for people that are allies to God. No, he was dying for people who are an affront to God. But that's what the Father does. He saves unconditionally. Verse 21 goes on to say, Through this Father, through Jesus I mean, you believe then in the Father. So through Jesus, you believe in the Father. And this Father raised Jesus from the dead and glorified Jesus. And so your faith and hope are in the Father. Okay, so I'm carrying through who God is. is that he's titled Father in this text. So it's through Jesus we've come to believe in the Father. And therefore, the Father has raised Jesus from the dead, glorified Jesus, and so that our faith and hope are in the Father. So the Father, because of his love, we love this Father back. We love the Father back because through him we've come to believe. Without his work, we would not have the faith to believe. This is similar to what Paul writes in Ephesians when he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this faith is not from yourself. It rather is the gift of God. So the very faith you and I might have today here in this room to believe that there was a man named Jesus who was the Son of God who died on the cross even though he was sinless and then came back to life on the third day so that forever he conquered death for those who have faith to believe that faith is not even born in us. It is birthed and placed in us by the Father himself. So the Father is the essence and source of our faith. And it's the Father, as it says in verse 21, that raised Jesus from the dead. So he's the source of the resurrection. It is the Father then who also gives Jesus his position of glory. The Father is the one that did that. And so as a result, our faith and hope are not in just something else that's just frivolous, but rather it's in the steadfast love of the Father. Of love that does not go away. And then look at what the ramifications of, of having this love for the Father is. Verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. So let me paraphrase. Verse 22. Now that you have become more holy as you've been obeying the truth of God, you begin to now love each other. So I tell you, love even more. Love even more deeply. So we have this great father who loves us very much. And we love him and become holy by being obedient to him. And then our obedience in following his lead will cause us not to just love, but to love more intensely more deeply from the heart. The takeaways are simple from this text. Peter's laid out the gospel. Peter has spoken that he believes that the work of the Father is sufficient and that the Father is the source of it all and Jesus is then on display, the manifestation of the Father's love, that the way to becoming holy is by being obedient to him 
And the first action is love. Love the Father and then love other people deeply. Is this sounding familiar? For the last two years, we've had on our walls in the auditorium, the old auditorium, the marks of what a follower of Christ looks like. And it's as simple as this. Love God. Love people. Live truth. And proclaim his son, Jesus. You see, a person who's fallen in love with the Father, a person who has been born anew through faith, will begin to show signs that they are truly born as a new child in God's kingdom when they fall in love with the Father and it begins to overflow in love for other people at the cost of yourself. And this is informed in truth. And then if you begin to discover it, why would you withhold it from somebody else? Of course, you proclaim it. Let's pray. Jesus, you paid an incredible price for us. You did that which the Father sent you to do. You were obedient. Therefore, you were holy. But you did so because you loved the Father. And the Father told you to do so because he loved us. And as a result, we become the objects of your love. And then we're given this incredible gift of faith. So Father, thank you for your love. And Jesus, thank you for your love and sacrifice. May you be glorified now as we sing praise and thanks for the incredible work that, you, that was born in the heart of God centuries ago to redeem us, to pay our ransom. Be pleased with what you hear now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Father, we declare our love for you. We say thank you for the great price that you paid through your son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have been ransomed. And we also say thank you for the birth of faith in our souls. And I would ask that if there was anybody that came into this room that was not your child walking in, that you would then birth in them that same gift of faith that many of us here have experienced. That they would, their eyes would be open to see that you are a loving God who has paid dearly to ransom mankind, to pay off the sin debt that we had accumulated. So I ask God that you would do that work today. Jesus, we give you glory and honor as the Father has done as well. We say thank you for you being the perfect lamb who committed no sin and yet paid the price of death so that we could be redeemed. Your name be lifted above all others. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, as all things become new, I need to share with you that if you would like to pray with someone, there's a room we call Encounter that is right through those doors. It's right in sightline of me right now. If you'd like to pray with someone, there will be people in that room that we'd be glad to pray with you. If you need to 
have a chat with someone that's private and discuss with them things that are perhaps going on in life, that room is also for you. Uh, you do not need some kind of ID to go in there. It is a room of encounter between people and between people and God. So having said that, it's been a pleasure being in the Father's house with you today. Go under his grace, discovering the love of God and becoming more and more strange to the world. Amen. You're dismissed.